Would you turn to Psalm 42? Psalm 42 opens book 2 of the Psalter. A couple things just to notice. The next several psalms are titled by the Psalms by the Sons of Korah. 43 Psalm 43 is missing any subscription of uh, David or the sons of Korah. And so many believe that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are to be read together, that they would have been a joint psalm. But this evening we're looking specifically at Psalm 42. And I, I want to begin just by asking a, a few questions for us to maybe set the context of this psalm. Is worship important? And by worship, I, I don't mean some sort of esoteric thing that maybe we do um, out in the wilderness. I don't mean something that um, maybe some sort of feeling. What I'm speaking of is God's ordained means of worshiping Him. And the, the Old Covenant, there was a per, particular prescription how God was to be worshipped. And in the New Covenant, we see something as well. We see singing, preaching, prayer, reading of Scripture, and the partaking of the ordinances. And that is worship. Those are the elements of worship that are supposed to be um, observed by the church. And, and that's what, how you recognize that it's a church, is that pure preaching of the gospel, that there's singing of hymns and psalms, that there is prayer and there is reading of the scripture. Are those things important to us? So often, you will hear something to the effect from, say, group A, we really love the singing and the music. And they'll say, we really love the worship part. And then the, the preaching is, that's eh, okay. As if the preaching isn't actually part of the worship. But then on the other hand, you'll have those that go, I can't wait to get through the singing so we can get to the meat of the service and get to the preaching. And I do agree that the preaching is the center because that's where we encounter the Word of God. But nonetheless, there's kind of this sometimes this, this idea that I just want to get through all of those elements and get straight to, to the meat of it. Forget the singing part. Then there's some, in fact, I was recently told this, is that, you know, sometimes the prayers are, are too long during the worship service, and so, boy, you know, if we could just cut those down. Or maybe the reading of Scripture. Are those things important to us? We, in this sense, when we ask, is worship important to us, do we conceive it in terms of the whole thing, of singing, of preaching, prayer, and reading of Scripture, and the observance of the ordinances? And if we were separated from those things, would there be a hole in our heart that something was missing? I guess that's how we could answer it. If those things were, if I was pulled away from those things, would there be something in my life that is missing and it would afflict me? Because that's exactly what we encounter here in Psalm 42. 
Let me read it to you. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation. And my God, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night his song is within me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You'll notice the repetition of verse 5 and verse 11, where the psalmist repeats the same statement. So, if you were to divide this psalm, and by the way, I think it's sometimes helpful as an exercise, as you're reading through the psalms yourself, to look at where those natural divisions are, because it's helpful to see the flow of thought. The first five verses are unit, and it's the psalmist's desire for worship. And then when you get to verse 6, all the way through verse 11, you can see it's his dedication to worship where he's at. He begins with saying these words, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. And that's a, you probably, many of you probably remember the, the, the vineyard, I think it was Vineyard or Maranatha music had that as, a, as one of their popular choruses that you would sing. If you remember that, it would have been around in the 1990s. So you probably have that song stuck in your head. And I can remember singing it. That sounds wonderful, but I'm not experiencing that. Because this is very vivid and emphatic language of a deer that has been maybe being chased and is parched and is revived when it gets to water and takes a drink of water. And perhaps you have been fatigued, and when you take that drink of water, it's like you instantly snap out of that fatigue. And that's the picture and that desire that the psalmist has for God, that they will only be revived in God. Now, the, the whole reason he says this is because the psalmist 
is no longer in Jerusalem and can no longer worship as God has prescribed. Look at where we see in verse 2 where it says, When shall I come and appear before God? You'll notice in verse 6 where he says, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. In other words, the psalmist is far away from the worship that God has prescribed. And he's in the wilderness by himself, so to speak, and cannot experience that worship that God has said, this is how you are to worship. And so as we look at this as a deer pants for a flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God, this is a desire not from guilt, of I need to be in church, but this is a desire from the heart of a truly regenerate man that desires to be in the worship of God. I like what Peter says. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. In other words, worship itself is a means of God's grace for our sanctification, for the strengthening, and for the furtherance of our faith. We're nourished in worship. Because there it is where we encounter the word of the living God. And Peter compares it to a baby. A baby really only cries for certain reasons. And the main reason is that baby is hungry. And you will not silence that baby until it's fed. That is what Peter describes the longing of the Word of God, which sounds so much like the Psalms over and over where David says, I desire this Word of God. But here it is that he desires, he says, my soul, verse 2, it thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That is, when shall I have opportunity to be in Jerusalem and worship God again? He's thinking of how God has told him and told and instructed according to his law how they are to worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. That was according to the law, prescriptions for worship. And God's called them to worship accordingly. In the London Confession of Faith, it speaks of worship like this. I just want you to to hear this for a second and, and think about this as we think of what the psalmist is saying. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul, with all the might. In other words, God is worthy of worship, and He is worthy of full embodied worship. 
goes on to say this, though, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. In other words, God who creates us, and by the way, it's inbred in man that they are worshipful people. Every civilization, whether they have the word of God or not, does one thing in common, worship. They just don't know what they're worshiping, apart from God's revelation. So we're called here to worship according to his word. It says, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. You know how to know if a church is a biblical church is you look at their worship. And when you've experienced that, worship according to God's commands, then you don't want to have it any other way. And David had practiced. In fact, he looks back on how he had led people in this worship. He says that in verse 4, how he would lead them in the procession to the house of God. He'd experienced that worship, and for him, it was everything. And he thinks back to what he once experienced, and he's not experiencing it now, and he misses it. And he desires it more than anything. And specifically, you might be wondering, well, can't he worship God where he's at? That misses the point. He's not able to worship God according to how God has prescribed for him to be worshipped. And it's specifically looking at Jerusalem. John Calvin says this. He says, He, that is God, does not enjoin us to ascend to the heavens, but consulting our weakness, He descends to us. What does that mean? Well, you think about Worship in the, the Old Testament and how God descends to his people. When David brings the ark to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6, it says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now listen to the description of the Ark of God, which he's bringing into Jerusalem for worship. He says this, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Now, because they carry this Ark in such a way that was unlawful, it takes the life of Uzzah. And Uzzah at that moment, and David along with everyone else, recognized something very important about worship and God is that we're not free to tweak it any way we want. It cost Uzzah's life. It cost Ananias and Sapphira's life because they thought they could approach God in worship according to their own imagination. But David looks at Jerusalem and recognizes God's presence, especially 
with the children of Israel in the tent of tabernacle in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant is and God's special presence is there and he's away from it. And it brings him heartache. I just want you to just draw a parallel for a second where I, I, I believe this would be an applicable parallel is we as a, as a church, just a local church, not even speaking of the church universal, the local church are also promised a special presence of Christ in our gathering. Now think about that. Christ promises his special presence with his people. In discipline. We're told that Christ is present in discipline. In Matthew 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Meaning when the church is practicing discipline, and discipline is a mark of the true church, Christ says, I'm there with you in that. And just as he promised to be with the children of Israel in their judgment in 2 Chronicles 19.6, I will be with you in judgment. Christ says, I will be with you in these things in the church. Christ promises his special presence with the church. He promises us his special presence in the mission of the church where he says in Matthew 28.20, I am with you always to the end of the age. And you think of the picture of Christ with the local churches in Revelation where we read in chapter 1 verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. That's seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. That Christ is walking amongst his people in the gathering of the saints. There's a special presence of Christ when we gather in his name. So imagine now you're removed from that. You're removed from the the fellowship of the saints. You're removed from that. What we are promised is a special presence of Christ. And we, we haven't even gotten into the presence of Christ in communion. His spiritual presence with us by His Spirit. And it's amazing when you see statements about the Holy Spirit indwelling the body. Oftentimes it's in the plural. We oftentimes think of everything individualistically and your salvation is an individual thing. But we also see this corporate identity with the Spirit and Christ's presence with the church corporately. We have to think theologically just for a second to put it another way. God is omnipresent. There is no place where God isn't. But you look at the arrangement of the camp, for instance, in Leviticus. There was degrees of holiness. Certain things were allowed in the camp. And as you got closer to the tabernacle, it became more strict what was allowed there. 
until you got to the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go there once a year. It became more concentrated in terms of its holiness. It's not that God wasn't everywhere because he was. It's just to say there's a special presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And when Solomon builds the temple, it's realized in the temple, the temple is no more in a physical building, but the temple is now in the church. The special presence of God with his people. And the psalmist has been pulled from that. And it's brought turmoil to his heart. Can we now get a glimpse of what this, these two verses mean? As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He has been removed from worship, and because he's removed from worship and can't be in it, it brings him despair. And he desires to be with God's people, and to worship God. And you see that not only is the situation as he removed from Jerusalem and the ability to worship according to God's ordinances, but he says, my tears have been my food day and night. In other words, he has been crying incessantly because of this. And to add to the insult of this, is it says, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And this is Satan's means of discouragement to the worshiper. Where, where is your God? You're so depressed and you're so... Here isn't, you know, is your God only there in Jerusalem? You here are left alone and desolate. Where, where's your God? Isn't this also a question of the psalmist's faith? His faith is being attacked. His God is being attacked. Not only does he miss being and leading the throng that is being in worship with God's people, but now his very faith is being called into question and he's being taunted in a foreign place where he's far away from God's people. And so what... He does as he reflects these things. I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And so when you look at this verse, again, we sometimes think of this individualistic thing in worship. And it, it is... But it's stated here corporately with the gathering of the people of God. That's his emphasis. I miss being in a worship service with God's people and leading them in this. And this past joy that he experienced, that he can't now experience, he looks back on it and it actually brings him pain because he longs to be part of it again. Because he can't experience it. He can't experience what he once had. 
And so it brings him pain as he thinks about it. So we see then, in verse 5, and I, following Spurgeon and following Calvin, say this is the two voices of David. Look at the two voices of David. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Do you ever, in a moment of distress or suffering, begin to ask yourself questions? You ever begin to talk to yourself? You answer yourself probably too, right? That's how we work through things. And that's what David's doing here. He's asking himself, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? That's his question because he's obviously in turmoil. He's away from Jerusalem. He's away from God's people. He's being taunted by people in a foreign place. And so he then asks a very legitimate question because he is down, because he is in turmoil. He says, why are you cast down? And then he says this with this answer. And this is the answer we have to tell ourselves is this, is hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Regardless of what his circumstances, is he had a confidence that he would worship again. And whether he knew this as a a temporal worship of returning to Jerusalem or that the the Lord would maybe bring him home and he would eternally be worshiping God, he knew this. He says to hope in God, that's his advice to himself. He asks, why am I in turmoil? And then he gives himself the advice, you need to hope in God and he's with confidence, for I shall again praise him. Spurgeon says this is David having faith, reasoning with his fear. This is the, we see here his faith and his fear working together. And his faith reasons with the fear that he experiences. He moves on into the second part, again to start off, start off much like verse 1 where he says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. So he's looking off to Jerusalem. He's missing the ark. He's missing God's people. He's in this place where he's being taunted. And there, from there, after he has said, I I shall praise him. He's my God. He's my salvation. I will praise him again. And it's from there, at this point where he's separated from that, where he says, therefore I remember you from where I am. I wonder if David... You know, experience what Stephen teaches in Acts chapter 7. If you remember in Stephen's speech, where he talks about how Abraham was called not in Jerusalem. He was not called when there was a temple. But yet Stephen's point is this, as God's presence was with Abraham. God's presence was with Isaac, was with Jacob, was with Joseph in Egypt. God's presence was with David. 
You just wonder maybe if David began to run, run the Torah through his own mind and say, wait, you were with Abraham in a foreign land. You're with me in a foreign land. And David had, while he did not have the means of worship that God had prescribed, he had the word of God. I think of Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And I know sometimes people you know, say, well, we don't know who wrote Psalm 119 because it doesn't give a description to David. David wrote Psalm 19. And if I'm wrong about that, then God will reveal that to us in heaven. But it certainly reads like David. What does David say? I meditate on your law day and night. That is to say that God's word is abiding with him, whether he is in Jerusalem or whether he's somewhere else. It says from Mount Mazar, which is small mountain, not on the big mountain, on the small mountain. But God's word was in his heart. And he meditates upon that. And it brings him to this reflection that's hard for us to do. In his state of suffering, he's clearly showing that he's experienced turmoil. He's experienced suffering. He misses God's people. He says, therefore, I remember you. So here's the progression. He's starting to now reflect upon God's word. And when we get to verse 7, he starts to reflect and meditate upon the justice of God. How often do we, usually takes us to a breaking point before we get there, where we begin to reflect on our suffering, on the turmoil, and wonder, am I experiencing justice or chastisement? Am I, what am I experiencing right now? Look at how he states it. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, while it's sometime after David, you actually hear these same words in Jonah. Almost exact same words in Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah was under the chastisement of God, the discipline of God. And so as David says this, Jonah will say it later, the very same thing. It's almost as if creation itself was attacking him, and that's how he describes it. And he is meditating upon his suffering, his circumstances, whatever they were, whatever the background is that that brought him to, to write these words. He's reflecting upon that, on meditating upon his suffering, and he states it in such a way that is if he's experiencing a flood itself. But look what he goes on to say. Verse 8, by the day, 
or by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In other words, if I wake up in the morning, I've experienced God's steadfast love. And when I go to sleep at night, there's a song in my heart, and there's a continual praise and prayer to God. This is an amazing progression you see, because if you look through this in verse 3, it says that he's been taunted. He says, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's still not back in Jerusalem. He still hasn't been returned back to, to worship or able to go home. And when he gets here, he goes on to say that there's still taunting him in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? So think about it. He's saying my soul longs for God, my soul thirsts for God, as a, a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for God. My enemies are taunting me. I'm in a foreign land. His desire is to be back with God's people. His desire is to be back in Jerusalem. But he's not back in Jerusalem. He's not back with God's people. And he's still being taunted. But yet, verse 8, after he has meditated upon the, the, the justice of God and the discipline of God, as he has meditated upon these things, he says, there is a song within me. Something changed in him. Because when he wakes up, it brings an awareness of God. His enemies are still there, but there is an awareness of the presence of God, and he responds to the revelation of God in his heart with worship. And you sometimes think of Ezekiel and how God reveals himself to Ezekiel as he's in exile. And what an encouragement that was as all of them were Ezekiel included were looking to Jerusalem to worship because they were removed from there. They were in exile and their hearts longed for God. And God reveals himself to them in a strange land. They couldn't do the sacrifices. They couldn't do the ordinance. They couldn't do any of those things. They were in exile. Their hearts longed to be returned there. And God reveals himself to Ezekiel and says, I'm sovereign over all things. And my word still rules. I'm God over the gods of Babylon. And so here David is able to recognize God is with him, even in this wilderness. It's amazing what he says is a prayer to the God of my life. That is a speaking of his open access to God in prayer. Look, you don't have to pray in church as the only place you can pray. David recognizes that. Are we called to pray in church? Yeah. Should we pray in church? Absolutely. The gathering of the saints is when we, we, we must always have that marked by prayer. It's a wonderful thing. 
As David is off by himself, though, he recognizes, I can still pray to my Heavenly Father. I can still go to Him in prayer. I still have His Word. He has revealed Himself to me, and I can still respond in worship. He recognizes that he has access to God. He says, I say to my God, my rock. Now you pause right there. That is a rock that God is immutable, that God is unchanging, that God does not change. But yet, as he says this, I say to my God, my rock, he's already said the God of my life, he goes, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He begins to question God. Now, if that sounds off-putting, it shouldn't, because notice how he addresses God. My rock, my stability, you are the unchanging God. You are my refuge. Why have you forgotten me? He hasn't lost hope in God. He's coming to God with questioning. Let me, let me tell you that, actually, going back to Peter, Peter tells us this too. David says he's in turmoil. David says he's suffering. He's not with God's people. He misses it. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you really believe that? That our rock, our refuge, that he cares for you? We shouldn't question it because he sends his son to die for us. Greatest example of love that God could show us. He cares for you. We need not doubt it because if you are in Christ, he cares for you. And he tells you, I care for you, so cast your anxieties on me. Take your suffering to me. Take your turmoil to me. Bring it to me. And we can do that because he is our rock. Because he is our salvation. Because he is unchanging. We can cast our anxieties on him. And so David just openly, in the sincerity of prayer, asks, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Then he says what the enemy is doing, as with a deadly wound in my bone, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me, all day long, where is your God? So they're saying the same thing. He's repeating the same thing. He says, this is like it's breaking me. It's an unbearable taunting. But the difference now is that he's in communion with the Lord. And he's able to bear up under it. And so, but as he reflects it from this new position that he's in, he again then asks, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So we go back to those two voices of David. David asks a question, why are you so down? And then he reminds himself, hope in God. Hope in God. What was his desire? To be in worship. Now, if we look at verse 1 again, we say, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That ought to be our desire for worship as well. That ought to be our desire for worship. Worship is God's means of grace of strengthening, maturing our faith. And again, David is not talking about some feeling we get when we're listening to some Christian song on the radio or a moment of prayer or reading. He's talking about the gathered um, saints worshiping according to God's Word. That's what he's calling for. Or what he misses But he says something here that's an exaggeration. And it's in verse 7. He says this, The deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I say that's an an exaggeration because it doesn't happen to David. David's not destroyed. David returns as king and is able to set aside the means for his son to eventually build a temple and for worship. David returns to Jerusalem and is able to lead the people in right worship of God. David's able to experience these things. So when you read this, you realize, wait, that's really not true. David wasn't destroyed. David lived to a ripe old age. But there's something here that we should see is his greater son did actually get destroyed. His greater son had the waves roll over him of judgment and God's wrath. And it's the same son that truly, from a pure heart, could say, So my soul thirsts after God. Where we lack it, Christ fulfilled it. Where David experienced turmoil in part, Christ experienced it in its fullness. Christ had experienced it in our place. And as David looks And says, I say to my God, to my rock. And as he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. His salvation is rooted in the righteousness of Christ, his greater son. As he looks forward to him, we look back upon him. And that is our heart's cry with David's because of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ.
Our greatest desire should be that of worship. Our greatest desire and longing should be that of the gathered saints together in corporate worship, singing, praying, reading scripture, the ordinances, and the proclamation of God's word. And if we were removed from that, would that take us into turmoil? If we were removed from the corporate worship of God, or would it be just like, nah, it's, I can take it or leave it, I can miss it, and it's not a big deal. I submit to you that the one who experienced the waves and the flood of God's wrath changes our hearts in such a way that a fruit of our salvation is that longing, that thirst. Though at times it wanes and it ebbs and it flows, it nonetheless is present in the one that is truly regenerate in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more that we experience it, the more we begin to love it because it transforms us. It shapes us. It molds us. That's why the confession talks about God's means of grace. This is God's means of grace in our life. How do I grow as a Christian? Go to worship. And when you remove from that, it ought to leave a pit in our stomach, a hole in our heart that something's missing. Something's missing. May that be our desire. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ that he experienced your wrath in our place. We praise you that in him we're given a new heart, new mind, new disposition. And that even though it at times is small, we have a thirst for gathering with your people to worship you. I do pray that, Father, as we gather, we would always be mindful of your word and guiding us and directing us in worship and right worship. And I pray that our desires for worship would increase. That we would be like David, that when we're away from worship, we we would say that we thirst for it. We pray that, Father, by your grace, we would grow in these desires. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.